come to your word this evening. We pray by your spirit that you would give us what we do not have, that you would teach us what we do not know, and that you would make us what we are not yet. For Jesus' sake. Amen. When I was younger, my big hobby was astronomy. I was captivated by the beauty of the night sky. I loved learning about the stars and trying to make out different constellations or find the moons of Jupiter or the rings of Saturn. And my favourite planet of all was Pluto. This was in the 1990s, before Pluto was outrageously demoted from planet status. And you couldn't see Pluto through a little telescope like mine, of course. But I love the idea of this this tiny, distant world right on the edge of the solar system, very icy and dark and mysterious. And I mention this because the little epistle of Jude has long been the Pluto for preachers. Easy to skip over, often avoided, rarely heard, right on the fringes, demoted from the Anglican lectionary. In fact, Jude has been called the most neglected book in the whole New Testament, Why should this be? Partly because it's so short, just 25 verses. Partly because there's a lot of overlap with the much longer second letter of Peter. And why it's sometimes said, would we want to enjoy this brief snack when we can enjoy that full feast in the company of the great apostle? Partly because much of the letter may, at first glance, appear pretty unpalatable, even off-putting, verse after verse of fierce invective against false teachers with lots of obscure Old Testament allusions and mysterious references to angels, and without the profound doctrinal insights or soaring theological beauty of Paul's letters or John's. This neglect isn't only a recent thing. Right back even in the early centuries of the church, the letter of Jude raised, raised quite a few Episcopal eyebrows, had a whiff of difficulty about it, principally because of Jude's appeal to a non-biblical tradition in the story of the archangel Michael disputing with the devil in verse 9, and even more contentiously, Jude's use of a non-biblical text, the first book of Enoch, in verses 14 and 15, which I will cover next week. Um, But I want to suggest to you this Sunday next that Jude is undeservedly neglected. It's an extraordinarily rich and carefully crafted letter, less a distant planet than a polished jewel. The text has all kinds of repeated catchwords and rhythms, and you may especially notice Jude's endearing fondness for making three points at a time. He is truly the patron saint of evangelical preachers. What's more, I think Jude's a terribly important and relevant letter for us, most especially amid the challenges the church faces today. So it's not just a polished jewel, but a clarion call, a herald's trumpet, which wants to wake us up from sleep and open our eyes and prepare us for battle, to fight for the faith. Well, let's dive in, shall we? Jude starts the letter by telling us about himself, and then he offers this beautiful description of the blessings of being a Christian. Who is Jude? Jude was one of Jesus' brothers. That put Jude and his brother James in a uniquely privileged position. They grew up with Jesus. They were part of Jesus' family. They were closer to him, humanly speaking, than anyone else in the world. And yet, as far as we can tell, throughout Jesus' life, they didn't believe he was God's son. In Mark chapter 3, for example, Jesus' brothers seem to think he's out of his mind and they try to call him in. It's only the death and the resurrection of Jesus that reveals the truth of his identity to Jude and to James 
It's only on the other side of the cross and resurrection that their eyes are opened. And then wonderfully, both Jude and James go on to form part of the early leadership of the church. Both are led by the Spirit to write letters that now form part of our New Testament. There's a lovely little encouragement right at the outset here to keep praying for our non-Christian friends, especially those we've been praying for for years without any apparent evidence of saving faith being kindled in them. Persevere, keep praying. It took perhaps 30 years for the penny to drop for Jude and for James And they were closer to Jesus than anyone. And so keep pointing your friends to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Because that's where Jesus' love and his identity are most powerfully revealed. It's as the crucified and risen Lord that Jesus opens people's eyes. So Jude starts by telling us that he's the brother of James. Notice he doesn't say the brother of Jesus. No, Jude now relates to Jesus differently, not as a blood relation, but as a servant of his Lord. He's a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Jude has received Jesus Christ and believed in his name. What matters now is not the circumstances of his first birth, but that he's been born again. The word servant here is really a little bit stronger. It's really slave. Jude knew the most important thing he could say about himself was that he'd been bought at a price. He'd been freed from captivity to sin. And he now belonged to Christ. So where does Jude's authority come from in writing this letter? Not from being a brother of Jesus Christ, but from being a servant of Jesus Christ. Not trusting in his shared blood with Jesus, but in the shed blood of Jesus. That's who Jude is. Who are we? Now Jude's writing, of course, to a very specific group of people. Perhaps one church. Perhaps a group of churches where his letter would have been circulated around. But his description of those churches' identity, those believers' identity, can, by God's grace, marvellously apply to each one of us who trust in Jesus. And it's Jude's first chance to flourish his trademark three points. What are the most important things that could be said about us as the alarm goes off each morning, as we get out of bed? What's the most important, unshakable things that could be said about Angela Palmer or Jackie Noble or Josh Cairns or any of us each and every day? Three things that we are called that we are loved by, in God the Father, and that we are kept for Jesus Christ. Called, meaning called from darkness to light, called into God's kingdom by God's act of divine initiative and grace, not because you chose God, but because God chose you. Loved in God the Father, meaning embraced and enfolded by God's love, brought from the chaos of shipwreck into the beautiful country of God's love. If you've got one of those clever phones that locates your GPS signal on a map, that may tell you your geographical coordinates. But the true answer to the question, Christian, where are you, is always and forever in God's love. Called, loved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. Meaning you are kept safe and sound. You are ready for Jesus' return in great glory. You are kept as a treasure, is kept until its owner returns. You are in God's safe keeping. The Christian is one who is called, who is loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And it's God, not us, who is the agent of the calling and the loving and the keeping. And because these things depend on God, not on us, they are secure and unchanging. Once bestowed, they now remain. And so, therefore, mercy and peace and love, another three, are ours in abundance These are not just the gifts of a a miserly, penny-pinching God who's keeping some of the good stuff back. 
These are the gifts of the God who blesses us in abundance. That's who Jude is, who we are, what then are we to do? Jude says in verses 3 and 4, we are to contend for the faith, knowing the danger that we face. I'm not sure whether you noticed, but this is the letter that Jude didn't want to write. Jude was eagerly preparing, it appears, to write a sunny letter to the churches about the joy, the joys of their shared salvation. But then disturbing news comes to him of false teachers in these churches. So instead he feels compelled to write the letter we have in front of us. This is an emergency letter. This is dispatched to Christians in greatest danger. I guess there's a little point hidden here. Um, I know I need to take it on board. Perhaps this rings true for some of us, which is that God's timing is not our timing. I get very stressed by interruptions because they derail my timetable and my priorities. But like Jude, I need to be open to the blessings of interruptions, not least because it helps to remind me that God knows far better than I do what he wants me to do and when he wants me to do it. So what is the breaking news? What's got Jude concerned? Have a look at verse four. Jude tells us that false teachers, ungodly men, have secretly slipped into the church's fellowship. When false teaching comes into the church, It comes with subtlety, not with fanfare. These men do not look like villains, twiddling their moustaches, winking and nudging and cackling to the cameras. They have not arrived in the church with T-shirts saying, I heart heresy. Now, these men have come as angels of light. Jude has to spend the majority of his short letter exposing these men as ungodly and as dangerous, precisely because they need exposing because they appear so charming and witty and persuasive and educated and urbane. What is wrong with these fine and impressive men? Why exactly are they so dangerous? Because, Jude says in verse 4, they pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Note again here the subtlety of false teaching. False teachers really just stand up and denounce scripture They rather affirm scripture, but twist it. False teachers don't outrightly ditch God's grace. They affirm it, but they pervert it. These false teachers love talking about God's grace. Their sparkling sermons are full of it. That's to say, they love talking about God's free favour towards us in Christ, forgiving people, liberating them from sin and condemnation and judgment. But here comes the problem. It becomes clear from the rest of Jude's letter that the false teachers don't stop there. They go on to say, we've received God's grace in Christ, therefore everything is permissible. We are free in Christ. We are liberated from all laws and requirements. We're liberated from all moral restraints. So we can do what we want. And what's more, we have God's blessing as we do so. The gospel becomes, as Jude puts it, a license for immorality. It's what Bonhoeffer famously called cheap grace. Cheap grace, he wrote, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Communion without confession. It's grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. We might want to add this is grace without the Holy Spirit. This is that Holy Spirit who works in us when we, want, when we become Christians to sanctify and transform us so that we bear fruit in our lives. That's missed out here too. The problem in these churches 
is not just what these false teachers are saying as well, it's, it's how they're living. Because they're very much practicing what they preach. They're giving full throttle to all their desires and passions and encouraging others in the congregation to act in exactly the same way. And Jude says that in doing this, these men deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. What they preach and how they live amounts to a denial of Christ. These men claim to be followers of Jesus, but by rejecting his moral commands, they disown him as their master and they repudiate his authority as their Lord. They've replaced Christ on the throne with themselves. They're their own sovereign, their own Lord. Their error is to have forgotten, unlike Jude, that they were bought at a price, that they're servants of Christ and not their own masters. So what must Jude's readers do? What must we do in the face of false teaching? We must, verse 3, contend. Jude recognises that in the false teacher's attack on the moral implications of the gospel, the gospel itself is at stake. Because the gospel at heart is about saving sinners, not about promoting sin. Let's not think the gospel is only imperiled over matters of doctrine. Because Jude regards the ethical sins of the false teachers as the very thing that imperils the gospel. The presenting issue of immoral conduct isn't perhaps the terrain upon which Jude would have wished to fight. But he recognises that the gospel is at stake. And so he recognises the need to contend for it. Contend is a very strong word here. It describes struggling or wrestling or great physical exertion, Olympic exertion we might say. We get the word agony from it. There's sweat and sinew in the word, if I can put it that way. Contending for the faith is hard. It may be painful. It may leave us exhausted. It may leave wounds. But contend is what we're called to do in the face of false teaching. Jude wants us to choose the hard right over the easy wrong. And there's an urgency here. There's an urgency that's meant to burst through the doors of our laziness or our timidity or our preference for an easy life or our conflict-averse temperament or our desire to say peace, peace, even when there is none. We are to contend. What are we contending for? For the faith once for all entrusted to God's holy people. That's to say the faith, the gospel, is not built on the shifting sands of my feelings about what God is like or a projection of my whims or fantasies. The gospel is not plastic to my felt needs or a convenient means to justify my immorality. No, the faith, the gospel, is built on the rock of the historical events of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these unchangeable truths were given by God, have been handed down to the apostles, and our job is to pass them on and to contend for them And not to add to them, or subtract from them, or pervert them. So how am I to contend? Well, we'll have to leave that one hanging for a little now, because Jude only really comes back to answer that question in verse 20. And the answer may surprise you. But for the moment, let us be content with Jude's encouragement to contend against false teaching with the truths of the unchanging gospel. But before we, because before we can get to that, Jude wants to expose these false teachers as ungodly, as under God's judgment. Jude wants to show that the exploits of these men are not a surprise to God. 
but have in fact already been predicted in Scripture. In this long middle section of his letter, Jude wants his readers to open their Bibles to see how this kind of ungodliness is both repeatedly practiced and repeatedly condemned, and then to open their eyes to see how the Old Testament's identikit image of the doomed sinner matches these men's faces perfectly. So as you see on the handout, we get alternating exhortations to remember what God has revealed to us in the Old Testament, and then to recognize these men as fitting the bill, as already condemned, as already under God's judgment, a judgment that shall be finally revealed and enacted when Christ returns. Notice again, all Jude's lovely sets of threes. And I think one big take-home message from this whole section, from all these verses, is simply the encouragement to know our Bibles. Because Jude invites his readers to remember these passages, not to look them up for the first time. Jude knows that when we're challenged by strange new teachings, we need to go back to God's word and discover how God speaks to us now by what he has already spoken to us then. Perhaps there's a particular encouragement here for some of us not to despise the Old Testament as somehow irrelevant or outdated or superseded. Because for Jude, it's precisely there that God's true and relevant word for his situation is to be found. Well, I've got very few minutes left, and so I've um, rather a lot to come through uh, in these next few uh, minutes. Um, This may feel a little bit like a fast train journey now, as we briefly glimpse the names of stations out of our windows as we rush past. Um, Do feel free to grab me afterwards if there's a particular return journey to a particular piece of scenery you'd like to make. Um, But let's have a quick look, shall we? Jude starts by pointing us to three groups of Old Testament rebels who all rejected the commandments of God, who all, just like the false teachers of Jude's day, denied the authority of our only sovereign and Lord. In the wilderness, many of the people grumbled against God, rejected him, refused to believe in him. And as we heard in our first reading, God says they will be punished with destruction. They will die in the wilderness. This example may have been especially pertinent for Jude because here God judges those who are part of the visible people of God. The point is that just because the false teachers were part of the congregation, it didn't somehow make them immune from God's judgment. It was a living and personal trust in Christ and an obedience to his word that mattered, not whether they were on the electoral roll. Then Jude takes us back to an obscure incident in Genesis chapter 6, where the sons of God, here understood as angels, abandoned their proper place and descended to earth to marry humans. Here again, just like Jude's false teachers, we have the rejection of the Lord's authority, and we get the theme of sexually immoral behaviour too. And the result, just for those in the wilderness, is God's unequivocal condemnation and the promise of certain future judgment. Finally, Jude turns to the most notorious example of sexual immorality in the Old Testament, the men of Sodom's attempted rape of Lot's angelic companions. And again, Jude wants to sound the solemn tolling bell of divine judgment, this time with the added remark that the condemnation of the Sodomites is literally exhibited as an example. So in Jude's day, you could still go and visit the Dead Sea and see the sulfurous area of devastation where Sodom and Gomorrah once stood. I guess a gentle reminder to us, in all three examples, the agent of punishment is the Lord. 
just as we rejoice in God's sovereign love, in calling and loving and keeping us, we mustn't forget or downplay or be coy about God's sovereign holiness in judgment. The God who mercifully redeems is the same God who justly punishes. And then Jude applies these texts to the false teachers. He he says, recognize these dreamers. Jude suggests it was through an appeal to special revelations and visions and dreams that these men claimed authority for their new teaching. They must have sounded very spiritual, very in tune with God. What a privilege that he should grant them this unique insight into divine truths. But the Old Testament uses that language of dreamers to speak of false prophets, sham leaders, men who lead others astray. And Jude says that these men's errors match his Old Testament examples. These men too defile the flesh and reject the authority of the Lord and abuse angels. There's also a little digression here about the archangel Michael, who according to legend did not dare to condemn the devil when the devil tried to slander Moses. Instead, Michael left it up to God. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Jude's saying, in other words, that while all these Old Testament villains and the false teachers don't respect the Lord's authority, Michael did. He shows us the right attitude, which is to let God be the judge. And then finally for tonight, we have another round of remember and recognise this time based on individuals from the Old Testament rather than groups. Jude's point here is that when the false teachers reject the authority of the Lord and they make themselves their own Lord, they end up being the slaves to their own passions. They become, as verse 11 puts it, like irrational animals governed by base instincts and running headlong into a degrading and dehumanizing lifestyle. They are overcome by their desires, just like, and here come the three carefully chosen examples, Cain, who was overcome by anger when he killed his brother Abel, Balaam, who was overcome by greed and encouraged Israel into sin and debauchery, Korah, who was overcome by ambition and jealousy in leading a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. So there's a warning here of the progressive destruction that lies in store for the false teachers. Jude literally writes, in the way of Cain they walked, into the era of Balaam they rushed, into the rebellion of Korah they were destroyed. So sure is the judgment that will come upon these false teachers. It's already described here in the past tense. And then Jude launches an extraordinary salvo of denunciation. When Jude's letter would have arrived at the church, it probably would have been read out loud to the whole gathered congregation, perhaps sitting at one of their big fellowship meals, and sitting right there at some of the tables, laughing and joking, were these false teachers, the life and soul of the party. The atmosphere must have been pretty awkward as verses 1 to 11 were read. But then imagine the force of verse 12 landing like a grenade. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. The word blemishes there can also be translated as hidden reefs. That's what Jude's been trying to open the congregation's eyes to. These false teachers' danger is hidden. It's submerged beneath their popularity and their charm. But it's real. Upon such people, others will be spiritually shipwrecked and broken and destroyed. And Jude dramatically calls out the truth behind the facade. He says these men are 
faithless shepherds, not feeding their sheep, but serving only themselves. They are waterless clouds. You know, the, the sight of clouds brings joy to the farmers in hot Mediterranean lands who need rain. But these clouds come over and turn out to be waterless. These false teachers promise much. They deliver nothing. Fruitless trees. Again, these men may have initially looked fruitful, but as time passes comes the sad realisation that there will be no harvest from such ministries. Foaming waves. They're full of noise and energy and fears and excitement. But in reality, they leave only the froth and the scum and the washed-up wreckage of shipwrecked lives and wandering stars. Navigators depended on the pole star, fixed and true as a reliable guide. But these ministry stars are mutable and wandering and unreliable. They don't lead their flocks to safety but to danger, not to the light of glory but to the darkness of destruction. Well, now that I'm back to astronomy, it seems a good point to stop for this evening. Um, I'm sorry for going on so long uh, and for only getting to verse 13, part two next week. Um, why don't I kind of gather this up and pray for us uh, and for me as we, um, as we close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for that grace and mercy by which we are called and loved and kept. Would you give us strength to contend for that faith once for all delivered to the saints? Would you open our eyes to your word that we might be wise to your ways? Would you give us a right awareness of the dangers of sin and of false teaching? Would you guard our own hearts, we pray, and put to death the sins and the idolatries in our own lives? Would you make us spirit-filled servants of your Son, Jesus Christ, our only Sovereign and Lord? For his sake we pray it. Amen. Thank you, Mark. We look forward to hearing the rest. Uh, Second part of Jude next week. Thank you very much. Uh, We again have a good reminder this evening of uh, those who don't follow God and uh, those who uh, don't trust in the true gospel, uh, what their fate is. Uh, But our next song is a good reminder for those of us who do trust in God, for those of us who will stand firm, for those of us who will contend uh, for the truth and for the gospel, uh, that there is a higher throne. Uh, This song is a good reminder of what our future is. Uh, Feel free to stand, uh, feel free to stay seated uh, as uh, we hear this song played.
To finish our service this evening, we're going to say the grace. Uh, If you're able to stand, please uh, do that. Uh, This is something that we uh, uh, do not say to God, but we say to each other. So have a good look around. Uh, See who you are uh, saying uh, this grace to. Uh, These people that we are praying that God will be with. Uh, So let's say this together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Boots at uh, 10.30, so yeah. It takes a boot eight hours to get from Liverpool 